This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Jeff. My family and I moved here last summer when the church was still meeting at the lake. And uh, to this day, my five-year-old continues to ask, when do we get to go back to the church in the woods? He much prefers that church, despite explaining that it is the same group of people. There's not enough trees in here, I guess. So um, this community has meant a lot to my family and I, and we, it's an honor to stand before you today and to bring the word. Um, when Pastor Bart asked me to speak today, uh, kind of took me back to my days in seminary because these are the Sundays that we wouldn't officially call, but would often call the hangover Sundays. It's not very proper, I know, but we would call them hangover Sundays because, as Pastor Bart can probably testify to, after a major holiday season in the church, uh, Easter, Advent, uh, all of that, it, it kind of wears a pastor out. And as seminary students, we would just circle like vultures over those dates, just waiting to see who was going to get to preach. So it's kind of exciting to get to be here, and I'm happy to be here um, preaching in your place. I'm happy that you're here. Uh, looks like you did pretty well getting through the, the season of, of uh, Easter, Lent, and even Easter. And if you fall asleep, I won't take it personally. I've probably done that a couple of times for you myself, so... Um, but it's great to be here on the second Sunday of Easter, which is kind of cool for me. This is the first time I've spent this in Georgia, and in the church calendar, the second Sunday of Easter is the Sunday that follows Easter, but here in Georgia, it's actually the second Sunday of Easter that we see celebrated here, so that's kind of fun. It's kind of fun. Um, just to tell you a little bit about things I like, because I like stuff, I love a good cliffhanger. Is anybody with me? I love a good cliffhanger. I'm a child of the 70s, what some people lovingly refer to as Generation X. So my main babysitter growing up was TV. Okay? Watched a lot of TV. And in the 70s and 80s, they were really good at cliffhangers in TV. Because, you know, you could put a commercial right there, an advert, for something that I didn't know I needed until... It happened. I saw it, and then I knew I needed it, right? But these cliffhangers always involve some car flying through the air or crashing through a building, some robbery taking place, somebody in distress, or somebody falling into quicksand. My whole life I spent worried about quicksand because <laughs> it seemed like every chance you got, you were going to fall in it, and you had to wait for the whole commercial to get over to get out and hope that you survive. So many commercial breaks. These shows would, would really kind of get your attention so focused that you wouldn't get up to go anywhere. You wouldn't go to the bathroom. You wouldn't go get something. that You just waited for it to start again. And, uh, and I think, you know, everybody loves a good cliffhanger. I, you know, I, I read, my wife and I, we read to our boys at night before bed, and she chooses books for her reading. I choose books for my reading. I usually choose more adventurous, kind of suspenseful, lots of sword fighting and knights and kings and things like that. 
Narnia and Lord of the Rings and, and things like that. And, and I love nothing more than when we wrap up this big battle where everything seems hopeless. And I don't care if it's at the end of the chapter or in the middle of the chapter. I like to just shut the book and say, all right, we're done. Good night. And start saying prayers. And of course, they, they, they don't even wait for the prayers to end to say, Dad, no, stop. You got to keep reading. We got to know what happened. And I say, well, you'll know, but you have to wait. Kind of a mean dad like that. But everybody loves a cliffhanger. It's not just, it's not the best idea at bedtime because the two older boys often just sit there and talk about what they think is going to happen well into the night. We have to go back in and tell them it's time to go to sleep and shut down the discussion. But there's a problem with cliffhangers. And the problem with a cliffhanger is you can really only experience it once. Because after that, you know the resolution. You know what's going to happen next. Right now, the boys and I are reading uh, Count of Monte Cristo. It's one of my favorites of all time. And I'm enjoying reading it to them, and I'm getting to relive it a little bit through their reactions, through their comments, through their uh, suspense. But it's not the same. Because I know the end of the story. It's hard to go back and catch up a cliffhanger. You know, sometimes I wish I could just erase my memory and go back and read some of these things again so I could truly experience it. I've even tried that a few times, erasing my memory. It doesn't work. I don't recommend it. But in the church, we often have the same problem. In this book right here, we have a lot of stories where the writers and the storytellers have put a lot of effort into creating this suspense and this 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 point of of unknown what's happening next and you're just like waiting wanting to find out how is it going to come out but we've read it we've heard it we know it and it's hard to go back and hang in the suspense of that cliffhanger i think that's one of the problems we often have in the church is we're too quick to get to the resolution and we're not good enough at living in the unknown and in the suspense of it all. I mean, last week we had a Good Friday service, and the Good Friday is just a tradition of living in the suspense, of experiencing the death of Christ, knowing that there's a, a time to wait before Sunday morning. And if, I, if I'm not mistaken, I understand that in some early faith traditions, there was even this idea of ending the Good Friday service in silence and remaining silent all through Saturday. So that the first words that come out of your mouth are what we proclaimed a moment ago, that Christ is risen. I tried to get our family to do that last week, mostly because I had a headache and the boys were being way too loud, and they didn't buy it. But I want, it, I want them to understand that, that living in that suspense. And so today's passage that Kenneth just read is one of those places, one of those passages that's kind of glossed over a lot of times. It's not in the children's book or in the children's Bible. It's not in the Sunday school lessons. It's not in a lot of the things that we teach because we always rush to what happens next. And, uh, and so to, to this, this afternoon... I've practiced all week to figure out if I was going to say this evening, this afternoon, and just as long as I get through without saying this morning, we'll be good, right? 
um, this passage that Kenneth read is a is a perfect place for this cliffhanger for this. Well, you could put an advertisement there. You could put a commercial there for you know um, the local donkey wash and detail center. You know, come down and get your donkey clean before your first trip into the wilderness. You know, you could put a commercial there. You could really leave it hanging. All of the children of Israel are standing in this place of, the, of uncertainty, of unknown. They're waiting. The, the, the sounds of the Egyptians are, are, are powering down upon them. And they don't know what's going to happen next. And of course, as we heard, they go to grumbling. They go to calling out to God. They go to complaining and blaming Moses, saying, why didn't we just, why didn't we just? Second-guessing the whole plan. So let's back up a minute. Let's give a little bit more context. Um, in case you're not as familiar with the story as I am presuming you are. I apologize for that if you're not. Um, so the children of Israel stuck in Egypt, long time, slaves, um, hard life. But they're growing. They're getting bigger. And Pharaoh finally says, we've got to do something about this. We're going to make it harder on them. We're going to kill the children. We're going to do all this stuff. And God hears their cries. God hears them cry out to him. And he goes and finds a man named Moses and says, Moses, I'm going to send you in. I've heard these cries. I'm going to send you in to free my people. So Moses goes in. Pharaoh says, of course, no, we like our slaves. We like to get free work. And uh, and we're not going to let him go. And so God proceeds to do 10 major events, things that only God could really do. I know it says that some of the magicians were able to re- reenact these things, but the, the magnitude of it are 10 very godly events that in the end um, cause Pharaoh to fold and say, okay, you can leave. And the plan was to leave for three days, go out into the desert, do sacrifices and all that. And they I think in Pharaoh's mind, they were supposed to come back. So so they, they, they get freed to go out, and they get this sense of release, this sense of hope, this sense of freedom. For the first time, this generation is walking out of slavery into an unknown, but an unknown of hope at that point. So they've left Egypt, and then God has this conversation with Moses about his plan for what's about to happen. Kenneth read it. I'm just going to read it again real quick, if you don't mind. So I'm going to send them out to this point in the sea. I'm going to have them turn around and, and, and come back and face uh, back towards Egypt. And by this, Pharaoh will say of the Israelites that they are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has closed in on them, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will presume he will pursue them so that... I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all of his army, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And then it goes on to tell the story exactly the way the Lord planned it. Pharaoh says, wait a minute, I don't think they're coming back. I'm going to harden my heart up. He doesn't know God's doing it, but his heart gets hard. Gets ready, gets all of his army, all of his best his best chariots, his best fighters, his fastest horses, and they all jump in and they pursue across the plain heading towards where the Israelites went. Now, the Israelites, they weren't, they weren't privy to this conversation between Moses and God. They didn't know the plan. All they knew is that they were following Moses. 
and it looked like they were going in circles. It looked like they didn't know what they were doing. Some of them surely understood the predicament they were in when they saw the waves of the sea in front of them, the mountains on this side, and then behind them heard the thundering of the, the region's strongest army riding down upon them. As far as evacuation plans go, this wasn't the best one in the eyes of many, I'm sure. It was a seemingly poor plan, but they didn't know that it was actually going the way God wanted it to. God says in Exodus uh, 14, chapter, or verse 4, I have planned this in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army, that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. That was the plan. God knew it. Moses knew it. But honestly, I don't know that anybody else knew it. The Israelites camped as they were told. God's plan was to harden his heart again and embolden him to charge. And that's where they find the children of Israel in this story. They, they didn't know what was going on. And all they could feel and sense was the, sh the ground shaking as those chariots and troops powered towards them. Now, I want to stop here for just a minute. We're going to put a commercial break in. No, we're not. <clears throat> I want to ask you for just uh, a few minutes here to do something for me. If you know the rest of this story, what happens next, I want to ask you to do the best you can to forget that, to not move into that, to just stay here for a minute in the cliffhanger. I know some of you have probably already jumped ahead. You're already thinking of, of what God's going to do and how great it's going to be and all of that. And that's fine. We're kind of prone to that. But the next part of the story is one of the most famous parts, uh, one of the most famous stories in history. If you even find people who don't read the Bible or consider them followers of one of the faiths that that holds this story as canon, you're going to find that probably they've heard this story, seen it in a movie, seen it, you know, whatever. It's a pretty common story of what happens next. But for the next, like, say, hour and a half, for the next 20 minutes, I'd like you to suspend that knowledge and just try to put yourself in the place of these former slaves the ones who just escaped and now have their former captors riding down toward them to take them back to their useful positions as slaves. It may not be easy at first. Most of us, I would guess, have never been a physical slave to someone else. Most of us have probably never had to escape through the wilderness to freedom. Many of us have never heard the wheels of war charging towards us. Although with recent events, I suspect there's a higher chance that some of us have. But for a short time today, I want us to just sit in this place, forgetting the mighty wind that will come, forgetting the dry ground that will appear, forgetting the entry into the promised land, and just try to feel what they might have felt. Now, if you've experienced something like this before, if you have been a refugee or even are a refugee, 
If this is too painful, then I just ask you to don't participate in this exercise. You can sit and maybe overhear what we're going to talk about. I don't want it to be too difficult. But for the rest of us, I'd like us to just kind of be there for the duration of this message. I often feel like the Exodus version, and probably you can continue on through the rest of, of uh, Deuteronomy, uh, Leviticus. This version of the children of Israel often gets a pretty bad rap, I think. I mean, if you ask what they know, what you know, what people know about the children in the in the wilderness, it's mostly grumbling and arguing and doing the opposite of what God tells them to do. And even Moses falls into that um, temptation. They're quick to grumble, they're quick to blame, and they're quick to lose confidence in God and, and, and in Moses and in each other and in everything around them. And I understand that a lot of the language that is used in these stories suggests that these people were prone to that. And, and I'm sure after years and years in the wilderness that became easier to grumble about, um, just the fatigue of it all and all. But at this point... They had just left slavery, um, oppression, hard labor, and they had seen God do a mighty thing and free them. And they took you know, all of their herds and all of their families and all of their people and they headed off into this glorious exodus. And this is the first time that we find them stuck in danger of being taken back. They don't know the plan. All they know is that in front of them, there is an uncrossable body of water. And to other sides of them, there are mountains they could never get over in time. And behind them are the thundering hooves and wheels of chariots and warriors. And I think if we were to find ourselves in that spot along with them, many of us would probably start to grumble too. Many of us might start calling out to God, what have you done to us? Many of them might start questioning their leaders. Why did you bring us here? Because that's some pretty scary stuff that they're having to deal with. We might, under this pressure of certain destruction, forget that God is with us and exactly what that should mean to us. I can't also help but think that maybe there's a little bit of group hysteria going on. We wouldn't know anything about that in our day and age, would we? Our views on world events, in my opinion, when, our, when thought through rationally and on your own in the quiet of your own home, tend to be a little more rational than when somebody or a bunch of somebody's around you start talking about the sky falling and you find yourself grabbing an umbrella with the rest of them, right? Probably some of that going on among the ranks of the Israelites here as well. We're often easily swayed into groupthink and before long we often forget that even if the sky is falling, God is with us. And then what that actually should, should mean to us. 
Regardless of whether it was groupthink or panic or losing sense of familiarity, even if it is the familiarity of slavery, this group of people began to cry out. It says that they were better, they, they started saying they were better to be slaves in Egypt than where they are now. Now, the Hebrew word here for cry out is the same word that is used in the third chapter of Exodus when God talks about hearing the cries of his people. And um, it's, it's, it's kind of translated as a cry of distress, but it's, it's, it's deeper than that. It's like this cry out of a soul of, that is empty of hope. And, and the word they use for it is sa'ak. And sa'ak is a, a just guttural cry. I remember one day when I was in my grad program, I was working at a call center um, and I was walking out to dinner one night late and there was a woman who was on the phone who let out this scream that will never leave my memory. And it was the scream of a mother who just found out her son had been killed in a car accident. And when I hear about Sa'ak, I think of that woman. When you have no words and no understanding of what's going on and the loss and the pain, just that sound that comes from the innermost being that has lost all hope. This is, this, this is the cry that the Israelites were making under the slavery and oppression of the Egyptians. And again, this is the cry that they are making in the presence of the sea and the mountains and the enemy in in coming in behind them. It's one that comes out of trauma, that comes out of hardship, that comes out of pain and hopelessness. And in Exodus chapter 3, God says that he has heard the sa'ak of his people, those deepest, most heartfelt, broken spirit kind of cries, and he is coming to rescue them. They're calling out because for just a brief time, they had flown from the cage. They had tasted freedom, only to come crashing back down into the despair that they called out from in the first place. Can you imagine what that fear might have felt like? Maybe you don't have to imagine it. Maybe something jumps into your memory, and if so, I'm truly sorry that you have experienced that kind of sock. Maybe you've had a moment when you've had nothing left inside you except this depth of the soul kind of crying out. And if you have, it's not hard to understand now how easy it can be to forget the mighty acts of God that you have seen in the past. The acts that God has done to free you, to save you from slavery in the first place. And it might make you forget that the promises that God has made to you in the past it may make you forget the event, forget even in the most difficult times that God is with you and what that should mean to you. When you look at this situation in the midst of the tsa'ak, you really see, as one scholar put it, a prime illustration of fear for the enemy that leads to despair compared 
in Moses to the confidence in God that leads to hope. The children of Israel were subject to fear, the fear that came from certain doom, from forgetting that God is present and that God is with them and what that should mean to them. When I was about 10 years old, my dad took me on a trip to the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. They do not compare to the Caucasus, but they're the best we got in America. Okay? We were joined by a pastor friend of my dad's, uh, Dr. Smith, and his son, Brock. His son was a few years younger than me. Our plan was to drive up to this area where the Colorado River was prime for whitewater rafting, something my dad and I loved to do. And, uh, and there, were, there were several ways you could go to get to this point of the river. There was the highway, which was wide and, and, and large enough for multiple cars and fairly straight and very safe. And then there was the way that my dad takes, which has room for maybe, maybe one car at a time. If you find another car coming the other way, you have to back until you can find a spot wide enough to get the cars passing each other. And off to the side is a several hundred meter drop to the river down below. If you really want to get in sooner, that's how you can do it. But my friend Brock um, was, was quite nervous. And you could tell because he made this sound. He sat right between the, the V of the two front seats because this was like, we didn't wear seatbelts back then, right? So you could just sit wherever you want. So he would sit between these and just look out the front window and go, <laughs> and, you know, I was pretty used to it by then. So I was sitting in the back just looking out um, down the, the, the ravine and, and thinking about rafting and all of that. But this <laughs> sound was going on nonstop. And finally, Dr. Smith turns around and goes, Brock, you don't have to worry because Jesus is right around the next corner. I thought to myself, that's insane. He's saying we're going to die and be with Jesus around the next corner. <laughs> but, but Brock settled down until we got around the next corner and he didn't see Jesus. <laughs> and it started up again. <laughs> Every corner, don't worry, Brock. Jesus is just around the next corner. And that went on for the whole drive-in. That went on for the whole uh, whitewater rafting trip. And as a, as a grown adult, thinking back, I probably think Brock wasn't ready for that trip. <laughs> and I have no doubt he's got some trauma he's dealing with as a result of that trip. But also, as I was preparing this message and listening to, listening to the scriptures, I began to think about this story in my past, wondering if Dr. Smith wasn't trying to remind his son that right now in the car and just around the corner here, Christ is with us. And that should mean something to you, Brock. And around the next corner, Jesus is going to be there too. And we don't know what the next corner is. We don't know if the road's washed out. We don't know, you know, if another car is coming. We, we don't know, but it's going to be okay because Jesus is just around the corner there. 
uh, I need to call Brock and find out how he's doing. I, oh. But Jesus was on that trip with us. And that, that should mean something to us. Moses was doing this at the end of our passage. At the end of the passage, it says that Moses was, was trying to remind the people that God is there. He is with us. He was doing it with a little less kindness than Dr. Smith did, though. This is interesting. In most of our English translations of the Bible, the end of this passage seems really kind and really cool. It usually says things like, the Lord will fight for you. Stay calm. Another one says, um, the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. But in truth, the Hebrew is not so kind. It's quite harsh, actually. And the only current English translation that I found that comes close to Moses' actual message is the, is, is the, uh, is, is the Bible translation, The Message, by Eugene Peterson. It's kind of a common language paraphrase of the Bible. And he writes it like this. Don't be afraid. Stand firm and watch God do the work of his salvation for you today. Take a good look at the Egyptians today, for you're never going to see them again. God will fight this battle for you. And you, you keep your mouths shut. That's what the Hebrew says. Basically says, sit down, shut up, and listen, and watch God fight this battle for you. Sit down. Gardner, we're not supposed to say shut up, okay? But it's in the Bible, so you can use that on me later if you mess up and say it. Sit down, shut your mouths. And watch what God is going to do. Thank you for that amen. <laughs> Moses gives him a good scolding. He says, first, look your enemy in the eye. Don't look away. Don't look down in fear. Don't look at me and ask me what I'm doing. God says, look them in the eye. Because you're not going to see them again. Trust God to get you through this. God is here with you. And that means a lot. And all you need to do is sit down, shut your mouths, and witness the salvation of God. <coughs> if you find yourself here today hope in a hopeless situation, or if you feel the pressure of all this stuff going on around us in the world that's crashing in on you, if the enemy you're, that you're facing today is addiction, abuse, past trauma, loneliness, broken relationships, or literally an army, I challenge you to hear these words today. God has heard your sa'ach. He will save you. And sometimes all you have to do is sit down and shut your mouths. There are times that God will ask you to fight. I'm not saying that you always just sit by and wait for God to fight your battles. We see witness throughout the Bible when God told people to fight their battles. But sometimes when you're so exhausted that you have nothing left inside of you except this guttural crying out to him, sometimes you just need to sit down and let him work. Let him be the, salvi the saving God that he is. The children of Israel might be expecting another plague-like salvation because that's what they've seen from God. I doubt any of them were expecting a sea to open up. 
and for them to walk across on dry land. The salvation that God brings in this situation for you may not look the way you're expecting, but it will come. Because God is with us. And that should mean something to us. Please pray with me. Father God, from the depths of our soul, we cry out to you. We thank you that you are the Savior of our world. We thank you for the rest of the story, not just the one involving this, the opening of the seas, but the one that continues throughout the book we call the Bible. That you sent your Son to save us from the pits of hell. To save us from the emptiness and hopelessness of sin. Father, when we grumble, when we forget, forgive us and remind us that you are here and that that should mean something. In your name I pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at TICF hyphen georgia dot org. Thanks for listening.